This is the John Oakley Show podcast. All right, let's get busy. It's that time in the program. Topics worthy of discussion every weekday afternoon on the Oakley Show. We hunker down with said topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636. Joining us in the house, as he does most Thursdays, Stephen Holliday is a deputy mayor and counselor ward to Etobicoke Center. How's Stephen doing? I'm doing great. Good evening to you. Looking forward to today's panel. Oh, very nice. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. David Sparrow's with us, the president of ACTRA National. That's the union representing performers all across Canada. How's the Sparrow? I'm fantastic, John. I'm wearing a, a lovely suit today because I'm off to a Film Ontario meeting after this where Lisa McLeod, our uh, culture minister here in Ontario, is going to be speaking, and we're so looking forward to it. Hey, by the way, you know, with all the streaming services that are now proliferating, uh, there's a lot of talk that, you know, maybe uh, we're not going to get as much work because, you know, they tend to uh, work around that. I mean, they love the domestic market here, but they don't want to plant down. Uh, and even notwithstanding Netflix making a promise of $500 million over like five years or whatever, uh, just quickly give me a synopsis. Is this to the benefit of ACTRA, your members, and so on and so forth? So right now, um, it is certainly to the benefit of performers across Canada and really in many jurisdictions around the world. These streaming services are very competitive with one another. There's new ones coming online, and they need content. And so there's more production going on around the world and in Canada than ever before. There's lots of work for performers and for creators of all types, our, our directors and, and the like and uh, we just need to keep fighting for uh, CanCon to be part of that because our writers and storytellers don't get those opportunities but um, as far as streaming services go we're going to see a lot of work for a while more and then really the streaming wars will begin to see who survives at 10 to 15 dollars a month what our audience is willing to pay. So echo that, uh, the film and television industry, the re- the production industry, the digital media industry is huge in the city of Toronto. I mean, I can attest to that as a member of council. I know I see the reports on that. I see the work that we do as council to support the industries and make sure that they're viable here. But just even knocking doors during the election, you'd be surprised how many people I ran into that said, hey, you know, I'm uh, I'm involved with this this type of production service or I do this or I do that. And uh, they're always happy to hear that their city councillor has some knowledge of the industry that they work in and, and can talk about projects that are going on in the city. Look around, you see the film studios, and uh, they look awfully busy. And I think that's a good thing for the city of Toronto. Absolutely. You know, I, I was just uh, reading, I'm kind of uh, bewildered with how it works now. Uh, content creators in this country have certain impediments to uh, being able to export their content to other foreign markets, don't they? Uh, You're bewildered too, so obviously. So I'm 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 uh, struggling with the with the question, and no no offense in that, it's a difficult issue in terms of our our broadcasters selling content around the world. Again, they've never been in a better place in many respects, and certainly they're selling to streaming services like Netflix and and similar. Uh, when it comes to other types of content, I know that there are some challenges, and in fact, because of some of the tightening of of borders and some of the discussions we've had around NAFTA and other things, there's always challenges in terms of how the U.S. government is responding to content from other places. But I don't think it's had quite quite that kind of negative impact on film and television and digital media. Finished product is not the only type of content that's produced. I know the television um, commercial, sorry, I should say the commercials industry is quite busy in the city of Toronto. 
Um, often you see short duration film shoots all over the place and they just have to do with TV spots or Netflix spots, that type of thing. And I also know that there's sub-production services, whether it's animation or some type of digital processing that goes ar- that, that is going on around us. You know, in a global economy where you can move big data across borders through the internet, you can work on a film uh, partially in Toronto, partially overseas in India, maybe down in the U.S., and it all comes together to a final product somewhere else. Yeah, you know, um, Stephen was saying about the impact is a number was just released uh, yesterday for 2018 was $1.9 billion worth of production in Ontario. And we know that 37,000 of those full-time equivalency jobs are right here in Toronto. And so it's so true that many of your neighbors work in the industry and uh, and it really uh, helps support so many other businesses. A lot of layers to the onion, right? There's the actual actors, there's the producers, the, uh, the film production companies proper, but then all of the suppliers, all of the cables, all of the hands, the people that do that right down to the paid duty police officer to help the uh, the production to go smooth right mm-hmm. all right so uh, so many facets to the industry and that's why we want to encourage it to uh, and it has been encouraged as well as the low canadian dollar which has made it attractive too mm-hmm. for a lot of american based outfits to be up here again with stephen holiday the deputy mayor dave sparrow the president of actra about to be joined by mitzi hutter the finance critic for the ontario liberal party she's in transit and uh, she's also the mpp for scarborough guildwood you know, I point that out. It's interesting because yesterday when Justin Trudeau shoveled his cabinet and you saw those people making the walk up the, the laneway there at Rideau Hall being sworn in, I just wonder, because uh, David Sparrow, you ran for uh, office mm-hmm. federally. Do you think that most people even know who their MP or MPP is and what they do? I like to think that most people know, but in terms of what, uh, know who they are, but in terms of what they do, no. And I don't know if you were at the Leaside 100 anniversary uh, a few years back that I hosted, and I got to introduce Stephen Harper and Kathleen Wynne and our current uh, municipal councillor at the time, John Parker. And I pointed out to folks, as I did, as a bit of comedy, basically, I said, now a couple of the people in the room here you don't see very often, uh, you know, this, this fella here, he's our prime minister, but he's way off in Ottawa, hiding, and who knows what he does, I said. And uh, similarly, uh, I, I said the same thing for Kathleen, saying she's she's down there. I said, but here's somebody who we all pick on all the time because we see him walking down the street and we say, hey, what about my pothole? And why aren't you taking care of that fence? And et cetera. And I, so as I introduced each one of them, and I really built up the municipal uh, councillor. And so I, I do think that you are correct when you say people don't know per se, what an MP does. We all know what Christia Freeland does because she, you know, was so much in the press. We see, we see Justin Trudeau. But um, some of these other ministries, uh, I think we need to better educate ourselves or uh, the government needs to spend more time helping us to understand what they do. I agree. As a principle, in my experience, uh, the different orders of government have different connectivity and applicability. And Look, I'm not trying to pretend to be self-important as a city councillor, but I know a lot of the services of the city are the first-hand services that people rely on. And when something doesn't go right, um, they're very quick to contact the city, and rightly so. Um, But as you move up the chain in the orders of government to your MPP and your MP, citizens are less likely to interact with those people very frequently. They might see them at meetings and events, but they're less likely to go to them for service, so they don't know. Um, There's one dialogue at City Hall that's interesting, and there's this discussion around ranked ballots, and it's about electoral reform. And a few of us are really worried about it because when you think about elections, uh, I can tell you, I looked at my website stats just before the last election, and it was, you know, it was pretty quiet leading up to the election. Then in the 24 to 48 hours before the election, 
it went up by a thousand percent. And that's because people are busy living their lives. You know, we're we're close to the political bullhorn here talking about it, but most people are, you know, going through their day-to-day activities. And, and that showed true during the election. People didn't think about it until it got closer to the vote time, and then they got online to look at things. So if you're going to talk about electoral reform, you start, have to start worrying about making it more difficult for people to go and vote. And uh, I worry about it when those type of changes come down, when you're going to have to turn around and say, not only do you have to vote for one city councillor, we want you to pick your top three. And uh, I think that's hard. Actually, uh, London just... Um, There's Mitzi, by the way. Mitzi Hunter has joined us in progress, the finance critic for the Ontario Liberal Party. Thank you, Mitzi. I just had to jump in because I actually um, had a bill, a private member's bill, when I was first elected in 2013 on ranked ballots. And, um, of course, we we made it possible um, when we were in government for municipalities to do that. London just uh, had their elections using ranked ballot. And, in fact, um, it it went fairly well and uh, the debates were quite uh, engaging and and people had a real conversation around who they wanted to elect as their mayor and council. So I actually think people do have the um, desire to be thoughtful about who they elect and um, and and they want to they want to have a say. I actually am a, a huge proponent of ranked ballots for municipalities. I think it gives people more choice and uh, and that's good for our, our local democracy. And I'll say that having been second choice very often as both an actor <laughs> and a politician, uh-huh. I'm totally for ranked balloting. Right. Uh, Espe- especially in the, yeah, the acting profession. There yeah. you go. It's called an understudy, I believe. Uh, Mitzi, let me ask you, because I know uh, you were the uh, education minister as well in the Kathleen Wynne government, and uh, that's a big file these days. Uh, we've been following it as well. And it looks like uh, things are getting a little more... Uh, strident now. Harvey Bischoff, who is the head of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, was on with us earlier in the first hour and complaining that the Ford government is sort of uh, negotiating, I guess he feels, uh, outside of the negotiating room. You know, when uh, Stephen Lecce, the minister, is suggesting that, for example, instead of four mandatory online courses be completed before you graduate high school, it's now down to two. (laughs) So they've sort of changed some of the criteria. Uh, And even class sizes, you know, whereas it was initially stated that they're going to go from 22 to 28, now they're down to 25. Uh, Isn't this conciliatory on the part of the government? They're showing good faith that they'd like to sort of meet in the middle or halfway. They're putting some water in their wine. Uh, Why would the union, Mr. Bischoff, be... decrying this as somehow uh, it's inappropriate to do. I think the concern that I'm hearing across uh, the the unions, the education unions, is that the negotiating needs to happen at the table and it needs to be done in good faith bargaining. And, you know, whether it's you know pulling offers uh, off the off the t- rescinding offers that were made, uh, switching teams, you know now uh, coming out with 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 changes to structure, um, you know that that doesn't really sound like good faith bargaining. It seems like things are are not um, the tone is um, is not conducive right now, and and I think that everyone has to think about how they're going to sit down across from each other together to work out a deal as hard as it is for the benefit of our education system and the students. So 
you know, I'm uh, the OSSTF is well within its rights right now. They have a no board. They've taken all the right steps, and uh, and they are now starting to withdraw services. Uh, they're promising that this won't affect uh, students in the classroom. But I do think that it's it's to the government, um, you know, the, the premier's minister of education to set the right tone of respectful bargaining at the table okay, well, let with, me ask with their partners. S- Stephen Holliday, I mean, uh, what Lecce is effectively doing is like going over everybody's head. And he says he's spoken to all the stakeholders and parents groups and so on and so forth. And they believe that, you know, this is what they would like to see. I mean, this is what he's proposing, if I've got it right. Uh is that inappropriate to do, or do you think that's just, A, good politicking, or transparency and accountability in his messaging? So I don't know how all the strings connect, but uh, it seems to be mixing a little bit of education policy with collective bargaining. So I you know, I don't know how much the online courses fit into the contract of the teachers. Maybe there is some connection there, but you know, as a parent, I'm thinking... I'm I'm happy that my kids are going to be taking some online courses. I just did some at work uh, this week. I need to have that skill in life. Whether it's two or whether it's four, I'm going to let the education ministry do their job and figure out what it's supposed to be. But I think the elephant in the room is this 1%. And either the union is okay with that and is going to take it out in a combination of pay or other enhancements, or if it's just a 1% raise in pay, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't sound like they can live with that. And my suspicion is the government is going to stand firm on that 1%. Well, all right. David Sparrow, you're a union guy. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, thoughts on the aforementioned. And by the way, uh, do you think the government can ever win this one if it's going to be disruptive to kids and parents? Uh Really, who has the leverage here? It's a really challenging file, and I've said before on this show, it's too bad that they didn't begin by saying, let's uh, meet early ahead of negotiations and actually begin to talk what's in the best interests of students and test scores, and also in terms of uh, teachers and and uh, trying to build the best system we can. But these these couple of things that are being mentioned in terms of class size and, and online courses, these are fundamental changes to how the product was being delivered in the in the classroom and two students. And so there seems to be a, uh, a disparate opinion between the unions and the teachers, therefore, and if you say the ministry or certainly the people who are negotiating or the, the government in terms of what they feel is best. So, yes, they drop from their demand of 28 to 25, but it's still higher than 22, so it becomes a discussion. They, the, the introduction of, of these uh, online courses, we heard on your own uh, news just a, uh, a short time ago that uh, experts are not certain that online courses deliver uh, the kind of quality education to people unless they're already very good students. And so so I don't think we have the, the facts, and I think that, frankly, the, the unions are, are speaking about these things because they're, not, they're either viewing them as some kind of smokescreen of, of the pay, if they're you politi- want to go to but Stephen. But they're political um, issues, right, as opposed to contractual issues. Now, I, I, there well, must political be, or there, practical, there they're must on be the some, ground in but there the must classroom. Be some, there may be some cause and effect with the contract that they're negotiating Negotiating, but they sound to me awfully like general political discussions. We got to go back to pay and benefits 
uh, working conditions, and those are the, the core things that are being negotiated in a contract, I would presume, but I'm not in that room. But, you know, I also think that it's about the tone of bargaining, and right now it's not collaborative. It's 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 getting to be much more heated and much more escalated. And, uh, you know, you, you talk about, um, you know, whether it's uh, a policy, an education policy or it's, um, it's, it's a labor uh, discussion, but at the end of the day, uh, these unions represent teachers who are in the classroom teaching and and so changes to education and I you know as the former minister of education and I negotiated um, with these unions uh, nine extension agreements which are now being negotiated right now it is difficult it's hard bargaining but at the end of the day you have to have a respectful tone and I think that this government has been less than uh, collaborative with its education partners, whether it's announcing um, where they hear it uh, from from the media about a one percent cap on pay or uh, changes to online courses, it's far better to have these discussions up front and uh, and to work them through to look at what is the evidence in education that supports that. There, are, there's no jurisdiction that has um, two or more online courses. Uh, there are a few states in the U.S. that have one. And uh, and you're absolutely right when you talk about who benefits and and who falls through the cracks. How is that going to be addressed? Who is going to teach these courses? How are we going to be accountable for quality of education? Those are qu- We need to have the answers to those questions. Parents and students want to know before we go down this road. All right. Good, uh, well, good, good questions, but I'm, I'm concerned about um, taking, uh, taking the answers from the union at anything more than face value. The union has a particular interest in how they shape their opinion on these things. I'm not dismissing or, or saying that we shouldn't listen to what they have to say. But as a consumer of the product, a parent with kids in the education system, I want the public policy decisions coming from policy experts and and uh, from the government that I elected. Um, the unions have one one piece of the say in all that. By the way, and I will say parenthetically, uh, Mitzi shaking her head, uh, your own government was known to be rather accommodating to the teachers' unions, and well, that equation has changed. Let, let me tell you, when I when I was education minister, we set up a collaborative table uh, where we actually discussed all of the issues coming forward with all of our education par- partners, and and they would tell me there's too many, there are too many items on that table. I think now um, they would wish they had a table that they could sit down and collaborate and discuss good outcomes for students in the education system. I think it's everyone's concern. I absolutely disagree. Uh, sorry, Councillor, that uh, this is not the business of unions. I actually think it is the business of unions to talk about the quality of education and how their members are going to deliver that. All right. And Lecce, uh, he's saying he's representing on parents and the kids' interests as much as uh, the unions are on their members. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.